When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the show, we're doing publishing history with Professor Dan Sinekin from Emory University, where he's an assistant professor of English. His new book is called Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed Book Publishing and American Literature. Really, a kind of a history of the last 50-ish years, 60 years of the book publishing industry in the United States. So stick around for that. Really good conversation. Here we go. Let's start off with the word conglomeration itself. A lot of people listening to us, Dan, today are big enough book nerds that they follow book industry news. So they know Simon & Schuster getting struck down. They know probably that Penguin was bought by Random House 10 or so years ago. But they probably don't know that this phenomenon that feels like just the way it is right now hasn't always been this way. So what does conglomeration mean? What's the history of the history of the idea of conglomeration and book publishing in the United States. Yeah, thanks. It's a great place to start. And when I see things like the big trial we had, if people followed that last November, when Penguin Random House tried to buy Simon & Schuster but got blocked by the government, by the Department of Justice, or when a private equity firm buys Simon & Schuster, and I watch the news, it sometimes makes me feel like, oh, it's too bad we don't know better collectively this history, because we actually could see that this has been going on for a very long time. In fact, all the way back in 1977, the Authors Guild and uh, book writers across the United States were asking for antitrust measures from the government to break up book publishing because they felt it had become too centralized. And it's a process that began even before the 70s, began in the 1960s, the early 1960s. Before then, you did have a bunch of small publishing houses. Even the big ones were quite small compared to today's standards. And they were most of them were run by the people who were the editors there or who founded the company or the heirs of the founders. They were family companies. They were pretty small. And that changed in the 1960s when corporations started to have, to have this financial incentive to grow bigger and bigger by sucking up other companies. That's what we mean when we talk about conglomeration, that one company acquires or merges with a different company. Usually we're talking about a different kind of company brought in together into a conglomerate. So a newspaper company, even though newspaper and book publishing are pretty close together, a newspaper company acquired New American Library, which was this really wonderful and important mass market book publishing company in 1960. And immediately the the newspaper company brought in McKinsey consultants to try to think about how we can make this a more efficient book publishing company. And in that instance, ruined it. But that's not always how it plays out. But yes, so this has been going on since the 60s. People have been concerned about it increasingly since the 70s, and we're part of this process that has been going on for six decades now. Let's talk for a minute about the conditions that made this attractive to be conglomerized, right? Because one one of there's for those of you who are interested in this kind of history, there's a million things to underline and facts and figures. But one that really struck me is why did it start conglomerating in like the 60s and 70s? Like, why did this become attractive? And I think the single biggest thing that stuck out to me is 
there was money to be made. And that sounds stupid, but the growth in sales between, was it 1960 and 1973, something like a 70% increase in book sales of these publishers. So people woke up that there was a business here. This wasn't just a bunch of people having martinis on the Upper West Side, which it totally was. It was that, and there were a bunch of books to be made. So can we talk about like the financial incentives of like why this happened? Yeah. So in in the book, I talk about all of these factors that actually came together in the 70s to make it, well, starting in the 50s and 60s and culminating mm-hmm. in, a, in a certain way in the 70s, actually just as some of the financial uh, incentives were becoming more difficult to make this happen. So first of all, you had you had mass market books become a new kind of category of book in the 1940s and 1950s. Until then, if you were an American who was not in a major city, it was hard to get your hands on a book. And people were much more likely across the country in dispersed places to be reading magazines because there were the, because of how distribution networks worked and how you would truck a book versus a magazine to the place where someone was going to buy it. So bookstores were few and far between and kiosks at your drugstore or your railway station, which were common. And so suddenly, instead of selling 10,000 copies of a book with these mass market publishers, you could sell 100,000 copies, 200,000 copies, and you're vastly growing the audience for books at the exact same time that a lot of the other things that are happening. So World War II happens, and then we have the GI Bill and all of these soldiers coming back. And actually, the mass market, the new mass market publishers sent books, hundreds of thousands or millions of books to soldiers during the war and got them reading books during the war. So they come back, get on the GI Bill, go to college. Colleges are expanding rapidly, not only with soldiers coming back from the war, but they're opening up to women. They're opening up to people of color and they're making all of these readers who are now having access to all of these books that are flowing all over the place. And it's only in the 70s that you get the distribution to bookstores and the expansion of bookstores start to catch up. And that's when you get the mall bookstores like Walden Books and B. Dalton, which some readers, if they're at least as old as I am, will have some memory of from when they were growing up. And so this is these are the things that are happening where all of a sudden you get literary agents seriously involved for the first time. You get marketing and publicity seriously involved for the first time. And the people at the very top are also realizing, oh, maybe these publishing companies are worth buying. Maybe we can get some quarterly growth out of them. This is also when shareholder value became the Bible for corporate management and quarterly growth became the key scripture. Mm -hmm. And so any place you could squeeze a little quarterly growth and they thought, well, maybe books is a place where we can get some of that. Yeah. And it's hard not to think now, I guess one thing, if we were to trans, if we were to transport these sort of a good generalist reader back to 19, 49, let's say, after the war. One of the big things they'd be surprised by is, hey, I'm in 1949. But as, as a book buyer, it would be how hard it is to get a book, even mm-hmm. if you've heard of it. You'd have to mail order it from your local bookstore. And if you lived in Salina, Kansas, you may not have a local bookstore. You may not even know what books to buy. And the increasing infrastructure around books ha- is happening at the same time. And it's hard. It's a little hard to parse like the proliferation of, say, microfiche catalogs. That, was that B. Dalton or was that Walden Books? I can't remember. It, it was, well, it was B. Dalton. And it, before that, it was Ingram. Right. The, people who are in the book business, like Ingram's a very familiar name yep. at this point in time. They do the wholesaling and the distribution. But they, so a guy named Harry Hoffman had to make Ingram into a big business in the 1970s. And he started yeah, with the microfiche and the catalogs and really making it much easier to get the word out. Yeah. So there's there's an element and it's an oversimplification, but it's I, I think as an analogy, it might work. 
that what was going on in the professionalization and the industrialization of making and marketing books was not unlike what happened with the assembly line. You could make more, you could get them to more people, you had different price points, you had a fragmentation and diversification of the kinds of books that were available. That led to a huge spike in growth that it seems like a bunch of suits saw that books, wait, there's a lot of growth here. It just just didn't turn out to be the kind of business um, that it was. Who were these people? How did they make books? And what is the world that we were exiting from as we move towards Mm -hmm. conglomeration? It's a fascinating world. It's a world, I mean, we're talking about the 1950s, the 1940s and before. So we're talking about mostly men. We're talking about mostly white men. There was a really a flourishing in the 1920s of new great new publishing companies by Jewish men, which included Viking, Random House, Simon and Schuster. Might be missing one or another, yeah, but yeah. The, yeah, that's names that, we still know. These are imprints and names we still know, right? If you paid, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you have someone like Bennett Surf, who was one of the co-founders of Random House, who was deciding to sell it with his partner Donald Klopfer. First, they went public, and they made enough money going public that they were able to acquire two still very important imprints in the early 1960s: Pantheon and Knopf became part of Random House. And then Random House, Bennett Surf and Donald Klopfer sold Random House to RCA in 1965, when RCA at that moment was a massive defense company making televisions. It was one of the biggest. And books was, Random House was just a small blip on their on their radar. But yeah, Bennett Surf was a very colorful character. He was on TV all the time, on the TV show Whose Line Is It Anyway? He was this kind of weird publisher slash public figure. And he was was also known for writing joke books. He would write these like, I don't know, corny dad joke books that would sell a lot of copies. And yeah, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time at Columbia University in, they've got boxes and boxes, way far more boxes than I could ever get through myself of materials from Random House, from their archives. And a lot of that stuff, there's a lot of stuff on Bennett Surf in there. And for all of the charming eccentricities of the man, he was also very much a man, in fact, worse than some of the other men of his time in terms of the kind of casual sexism that he would display and some of the things he would write which I include some of those letters in the book. Yeah, there's one. We're not going to read it here because I, I need my Apple clean rating, but also have tender sensibilities, but it's a, it's shocking, the kind of It's stuff. shocking, the it's kinds shocking. of things that he yeah. would do. I mean, it's really an extraordinarily misogynistic and hostile mm-hmm. work environment that he cultivated. You make a point at one point that like they could sell five or 6,000 copies and pencil out their P&L. They could be in the black, but then conglomerates come knocking and they've got enormous checkbooks. And it's probably hard to turn down. Was this life-changing money for Knopf for Bennett? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They they became hugely wealthy, right? They became hugely wealthy overnight by selling these companies. Absolutely. And yeah, and they were part of the motivation for them to sell was that if they died, then the company would go to, there would be a massive estate tax taken out. And so to keep from, and then the government, it would be up to the government to appraise the value of the company and just take a giant cut of the value to their heirs. And so one of the ways they avoided that was by selling it and then being able to invest that money for their heirs rather than losing it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Can you talk to me a little bit about what was changing about how publishers were selecting what to publish in the conglomerate model versus what they were maybe interested in publishing under the pre-1960s-ish beginning of conglomeration model, the three martini kind of Upper West Side editor? Yeah. So one of the things that I noticed while researching this book is how in the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, in that older model with the rise of the new mass market, there wasn't the same kind of differentiation that we think of today between literary fiction and commercial fiction, between highbrow fiction and middlebrow fiction. It all like fit in together. People would sell it together. William Faulkner would get, they'd slap some smutty cover onto the Wild Palms or Sanctuary and sell hundreds of thousands of copies of Faulkner alongside Mickey Splain, which was like the pulpiest of the trashy pulp when they'd be right next to each other on the bookshelf. Jacqueline Susan's Valley of the Dolls and Philip Ross Portnoy's Complaint. They were ones we would think of today as the ultra commercial. The other is a classic of literary fiction. They were right next to each other. So one thing that happened under conglomeration in the 70s is you start to see this divide that we live with today between the literary and the commercial. And one of the ways this happens is through how that mass market segment is changing and how they're thinking about how they can make a profit more reliably. Because as we were discussing a few minutes ago, people thought there was money in books because it was the 50s and the 60s. It was the post-war economic boom. Money was good. Money was flowing. Books were making money. But it wasn't the 70s. We saw stagflation, high unemployment, high inflation. People had less money just to go out and buy a Mm. book with. And books were getting more expensive. Wages were stagnating. So the book business suddenly... You buy this whole business and it's not making what you saw it making in the 60s anymore. So how are you going to squeeze more money out of it? So this is when you start to see a different kind of strategy for, and it's led by the mass market books for what kind of books to acquire. And this is when you get the invention in the late 70s of a very familiar kind of author that we have today, which is the big brand name author who's going to flood the market with hundreds of thousands of copies. Everyone's going to know their name. It's the Daniel Steeles, the Stephen Kings, the Michael Crichtons, the John Grishams, um, many of whom, uh, you know, Grisham, Steele, King are still writing. Unbelievably, it's a 40 to 50 year phenomenon at this point. Yeah, I mean, it started in the late 70s, but it's the very same people yeah. with the very same names. Grisham started a little later, but right. King and Steele from the mid to late 70s until 2023 and already got books planned for the next year mm. are doing it. And this was a model architected by these companies to say, hey, we've we're gonna like we're gonna go from what we had where we had like one they'd say publicity gal in the late 60s to a whole marketing department. And this marketing department is gonna create this campaign around this name and make Daniel Steele super famous or make Stephen King super famous. And we're just every time they have a book come out, we know they're gonna sell a million copies because we've created that phenomenon. And the inverse of that phenomenon, the other thing that they did at the same time was use a format that was popularized by Harlequin, a Canadian publisher that was like, rather than get a one big famous name that everyone recognizes, create a kind of a genre that becomes recognizable with cheap authors who don't have to pay very much, hack authors, but make these genres that people know, oh, if I get a Harlequin romance, I know what that is, I'll keep buying it. If I get a Del Rey fantasy book, and fantasy is a genre that 
emerged in this moment. It didn't exist before in the way that we think of fantasy now. It's a creation of the late 70s Mm -hmm. of a guy named Lester Del Rey. And he and his wife, Judy Lynn Del Rey, created Del Rey, the well-known fantasy Mm -hmm. imprint. You get hack writers, cheap writers to write these fantasy books or these romance books, and that's going to sell. And so what that tends to push out is what we would call, I guess, the mid-list at this point, debut novelist, literary fiction, experimental works of all kind, and be- or anything that's unknown, and that includes people of color or international or works in translation. And that creates a space for the nonprofit publisher, right? Mm-hmm. To say, okay, bo- both a financial one, a market one, and I think a cultural one that people who want to make books still want to make, they still want to publish these kinds of books. They don't just want to this is what I found of talking with people who's publishing. They want to make money and turn a profit, but they also want to publish Maxine Hong Kingston. They also mm-hmm. want to publish works in translation. And some of the, in the there's specific people you talk about, and I'll leave it to the people who want to read so I don't steal all the thunder. There are people who went from conglomerate publishing into these spaces and set them up. What were the factors that went into, a niche was opened up in the ecosystem for nonprofits, and how did they fill it? Yes. So this is something that began to happen. The ideas for nonprofits began to percolate in the early 1980s. This was that moment when authors around the country and people in the book business started to feel like, oh, conglomeration is a threat. Hmm. It's a threat to us. It's a threat to the kind of books we can acquire. It's a threat to the kind of things we want to do culturally uh, in the world of books. And it just so happened that there was a guy who he's a name that people don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a figure who's escaped from the history of books uh, named Jim Sitter, who was in Minnesota. Um, and he was doing some small time book distribution. And he was looking around and noticing that Minneapolis was a city that had a lot of cultural funding going around. There was funding for the orchestra and there was funding for the opera and there was funding for a lot of theaters, really strong theater movement in the Twin Cities. But he was like, is this a thing? Like, is this a thing for books? Like, is there, are there people who are doing what they're doing for these other cultural spheres for books? And he did not find any, anything. And so he actually decided he would do it himself. And he started looking into the history of philanthropy, the history of cultural fundraising, and getting in touch with the people in the Twin Cities who did that kind of work. There's a, And he got in touch with people at the national level. There was a time when the Walker Art Center, a great museum in the Twin Cities, brought in Toni Morrison to do a reading. This was back before Toni Morrison wrote Beloved, before she was like super, super famous. She was already respected and well-known, but not quite to the degree she would be. Jim Sitter finds himself at dinner in the early 1980s with Toni Morrison, and she's like on the committee for the National Endowment of the Arts at that moment. So he's picking her brain, like, how does this, how does this, all this money flow? And that's how he, that's why Minneapolis and St. Paul, that's why the Twin Cities have become this great center for nonprofit books. That's why Milkweed and Gray Wolf and Coffee House are all theirs because Jim Sitter started there and then the movement started expanding Outwards. So the idea was, look, if the market is going to put these pressures on the big conglomerate publishers that are going to limit the kinds of books that they can acquire, then we need to find an alternative way to publish the kind of books that our culture needs and to 
do that, we can get subsidies from the government in the form of the National Endowment for the Arts and from philanthropists, both individual philanthropists and corporate philanthropists. And that is that became a movement, never as big of a movement as Jim Sitter and his most yeah. idealistic dreams imagined. But it's one that's I think is you know flourishing and doing some of the great work in the 21st century in terms of work in translation, experimental work by writers of color. And it's not without, it's also important to, to, to for, for me to note, I think, that this is not a totally free space. It's not without its own constraints. Mm-hmm. And the thing that that I keep finding, kept finding as I was writing this book, is that everyone has constraints. Every publishing company has constraints, and those are constraints that are going to shape how an author writes, whether they know it or not, because mm-hmm. this is the ecology in which they have to survive. And so in a nonprofit system, they st- the nonprofits need to keep getting funding from these from the government and they have to keep getting funding from the philanthropists. And so they need to be, and they need to have a mission as well. And so they need to publish books that are like related to their mission and they need to publish books that maybe indirectly are going to keep people funding them. Yeah. I, it's so hard. And as, as a reader, it sounds like you were a similar kind of reader to I was in a, a smallish town who would go to Barnes and Noble and think they're interesting because they picked up Tom Robbins or Kurt Vonnegut in your case. It was Gravity's Rainbow that everyone has to figure out how to pay people to make stuff. And it's especially fascinating because you chart a couple people who switch flows, right? It also affects taste in a certain kind of way. Because we get, and the two you're really thinking about are Morrison's Beloved and McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. These are high literary writers coming into those books, or at least that's the thought experiment we're doing here. But the book that turns them into monuments, into icons, are a blending of what? I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, these are both books that come out around the same period. So Beloved comes out in 1987. All Pretty Horses comes out in 1992. And this is a period where you start to see the ramifications of what had happened in the 70s, what had started at the mass market houses, that division between the popular and the prestigious, these manufacturing of consistency and sales, starting to trickle into, I think, what's happening on the literary fiction side. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that this begins to manifest is that you see literary writers playing with genre techniques and you see them start embracing genre modes in a way that has a little bit of cachet or makes it a little bit easier perhaps to reach a larger Mm. readership. So the case of Cormac McCarthy is a really clear one. His first five novels, he'd been writing since the 60s, And his first five novels are all pretty difficult. They don't give a lot to the reader in terms of a handhold to help you get through it. They have weird plots that aren't very plotty. The language is difficult. The characters are inaccessible. And they didn't sell well at all. He would write to people in the late 80s that he'd never received a royalty check in nearly three decades of being a full-time writer. That he And he wasn't making money. He'd sell a few thousand copies. His books were going out of print. So that was his situation before he wrote All the Pretty Horses. And then there's lots of things that change for him, a whole sort of, and this is one of the things I want to investigate in the book is how we talk, we always talk about the names of the authors, but actually every time you bring up the name of an author, you're also, we're silently acknowledging, or behind that author's name is a whole group of people. Mm -hmm. 
in the publishing business who have helped shape that book that we have in our hands. It's much less the sort of most books are not the thing we that I before I wrote this book, I think most of us imagine when we pick up a book off the shelf that it's this kind of message to us from the author's mind that they sat in a quiet room. There was this whole group of people who've had a hand in shaping it. And so when Cormac McCarthy came to write his sixth novel in 1990, in the late 80s, he was writing and published in 92, All the Pretty Horses. He got a literary agent for the first time and a very high-powered one. He was working with the new head of Knopf, Sonny Mehta, who was on his way to becoming a, a, a legend. He was working with Gary Fiskett-John, who's this <laughs> other kind of <laughs> hotshot literary uh, editor. Um, and, and he had all these people who were nudging him this way and that. And he ended up writing a book in All the Pretty Horses that is much more accessible, right. is very much on the model of a classic literary Western. It's like Cormac McCarthy does a Louis L'Amour novel, which is to say it's still Corm- which is to say it's still Cormac McCarthy. Like it's still Cormac McCarthy's beautifully written sentences. It's still Cormac McCarthy's voice and his intellect, but yeah. it's also got this teenage cowboy hero who goes and falls in love and kills a man and struggles with his morality. I mean, and it sold 100,000 copies pretty quickly, won the National Book Award, Matt Damon's in the movie. So I see that as a kind of example of the way that that authors were figuring out how to deal with the constraints of the 80s and 90s. And it's not as simple. It doesn't sound like there's a smoking gun letter from McCarthy saying, you know what, I've had enough. I'm going to write Louis L'Amour in my voice. It's more of this is the water he's swimming in. There's publicists, there's agents, there's editors, there's marketing directors. In a lot of ways, it's much closer to our cultural idea of how a movie is made than we might think, where there's yes. notes and executives and an editor and that the author, writer, director, who is the author of the movie is much less clear to us. And you suggest that it's useful to publishing to maintain, if not the fiction, or at least allied the constellation of people that go into making the things that show up at Barnes & Noble or our Kindle. What is your case for why is that useful to publishing for us to forget the agents and the editors and the cover designers and all of the, the machinery that goes into it? I think there's a fantasy for all of us when we pick up a book that we are dealing with someone else's beautiful imaginary creation. And this is something that we tell. It's a story that our culture tells over and over again. It's a story we tell our children. It's a kind of deeply held fantasy of American culture is Mm -hmm. that of the creative, expressive individual self. And so the last thing we want to think is that these books that we pull off the shelf are industrial creations. I mean, that's not sexy. That's not fun. That's not what we're going to books to look for, Mm -hmm. even if that has is really often the case. In some cases, it's like, and and there's a huge range, of course, like everything from like, the incredible story of the Stratemeyer Syndicate, which was this fiction factory that created the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew books, which was like a genuine fiction factory. Or there's James Patterson is very kind of upfront in mm-hmm. his use of co-authors and the fact that he's just in his room scribbling off out, scribbling out outlines and handing them to people and doing dozens of these a year. To a story like a Cormac McCarthy or a Toni Morrison figure who have editors and are working with people, but are have a, a lot more of a hand in the process. 
But even in the cases of Tony McCarthy or Tony Morrison or Cormac McCarthy or, or David Foster Wallace, right. who I open the book with, David Foster Wallace in Infinite Jest, one of these great Titanic books of individual creativity, was very like sh- deeply shaped by his work with Bonnie Nadell, his agent, and especially Michael Peach, his editor, who cut hundreds of pages from the manuscript and really shaped it in a way that Dave Foster Wallace would com- worry about in his letters mm-hmm. to, to, to Don DeLillo. He'd say, I'm so, I feel so like dirty that I'm making these cuts for the, for commercial reasons of my artistic object. But that's what the book was a compromise between Peach and Wallace. And so, but we, that's not what we want to see. We don't want to see David Foster Wallace and Michael Peach on the cover of Infinite Jest. We want to celebrate the genius, right? Yeah. Even if that's a myth. Right. I guess I want to bring it all the way to the current moment for a minute because it's hard not to see the DOJ striking down Simon & Schuster's acquisition by PRH as at least a thought of, is this era, are we entering into some kind of different era? Is something else happening? What other models might there be in the future? And the one Mm -hmm. I keep wondering about, and I'm not sure if you've thought about this as all, so I apologize if it's out of left field, is the possibility of someone like King I guess Colleen Hoover might be a good example now, saying, I can do my own house, or I can throw myself in league with five others, and we can take our branding, and we can control the means of production, for lack of a better term, apology for the Marxism there, but a capitalist Marxist or something, like, realize that the means of production, all the work that publishing has done over the last hundred years to make the author the locus of literary import is transferable into making a business around it. And Brandon Sanderson is trying this, right? He has its own publishing company. And it's fascinating because he is exactly that kind of genre writer you were talking about. He's he's a both, right? What do you think about this idea of the author-centered, the author-owned publishing house? What would be the compromises? What would be the possibilities there, do you think? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And you know, what's what's Stephen King is a, a really interesting person to think about with regards to that question, yeah. because he's been wrestling with this stuff his entire career. As you mentioned in passing earlier, he knew from the start that this branding thing was a curious problem for him and something mm-hmm. that he felt in tension with, which is why very early in his career, he started publishing and tried publishing under a different name and it didn't work. And then after that failed, his, his, he, he wrote several novels where... <laughs> The novels themselves <laughs> are these sort of allegories about, about being trapped being a, or, yeah. Being a famous writer, even in Misery, yeah. the novel Misery, he's like, it's about a famous writer who's like, I'm trapped in this brand that I can't escape and people expect things from me and now what do I do? And so he wrote his own industrial or corporate problem into and then in the early 2000s like as soon as the internet came around he started trying to do this he actually started he did an experiment of trying to write a serialized novel and publish it direct to consumers in the early 2000s probably too early in hindsight i mean interesting mm -hmm. but i don't know I'm, i'm curious about that yeah i think it was too early and it didn't quite work for him and since then i think people of that generation the grishams the steels the kings they've ended up kings at scribner and he's been at scribner for a while now and i think they're getting older and i think they're yeah. probably like have settled into these really happy there's a lot that a publisher can offer you still if yes. you're one of these writers yes they have the they have this whole network of connections to distribution and marketing and different they're connected globally to other agents subsidiary rights movie rights, now streaming rights, video games, audio, yeah, audio, digital distribution, 
All of that makes it harder. It's so interesting to think of what the consequence would have been if Alfred A. Knopf could have written a check and published a book and sold 7,000 copies. And that was it. As you say, if you get the right 100 independent bookstores in 1952 to care about the book, it sells. And that's Mm -hmm. the name of the game. Whereas the opportunity cost of screwing up a launch of a Stephen King book. There's so much that I had mm-hmm. to, to leave out. But as I was getting to the end of the project, uh, I realized that in the 21st century, publishing is a global business. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the companies in the US are, I mean, Penguin Random House is ultimately owned by a German company. So is Ferris Strauss and Drew and Macmillan. There's Little Brown is owned by a French one. Yeah. So, and that's just the ownership structure, but this question of subsidiary rights and foreign rights and just the way that every book eyes of China and the Chinese market, there's mm-hmm. just, the, this is all impinging on how books work in the 21st century. Social media is globalized. And so I'm doing a new study on international bestsellers and I'm drawing some data to figure out get to gather bestseller lists from different countries around the world and accumulate them and see. Mm. And while one of the trends I've seen when looking at this is, yes, in fact, the TikTok writer, the Wattpad writer, the Kindle direct publishing writer, like continues to increase in visibility and possibility of breaking out into the mainstream publishing channels. And Colleen Hoover is the at the moment the premier example of someone who mm-hmm. starts as a TikTok book talk phenomenon. And then now she is, I believe, a Simon and Schuster, probably H. She's got one thing she's done, and I don't know, I don't know why. I'd be curious to hear from her. She has books with like four different houses. Like I mean, huh. I'm talking that she's got a Hachette title, she's got a Macmillan title. She has multiple titles at, at the same big four publisher with different imprints. She's very diversified, but still within. And one thing that happened, I think there was a bidding war for her backlist because she's this huge phenomenon that Apple ha- also happens to have like 25 books on her shelf that she self-published that she owns all the right to. Suddenly it's yeah. open season and they all want a piece of Colleen Hoover because she's a brand now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, and why is she doing that rather than going the Brandon Sanderson route is the question. And I think, and I I think at this point, we'll see how things go in the next few years. But at the moment, I think just that infrastructure that is established, like having a whole marketing team that knows how to do it, having a foreign right agent at your publishing house that's got connections, interpersonal connections with people at 25 other countries, having all of that where you can just hand the book over and they're going to take control of it rather than doing it for yourself. I mean, I think the big the big five publishing companies are, are in as strong of a position as yeah. they've been it's in. It's a great blended around. It's like, it's amazing. It really is amazing how strong they are. And that, but that's also, it, it, and, and they're in a really strong position in part because eBooks and audiobooks ended up working to their advantage rather mm. than just like in, in film streaming, yeah. it really transformed or did it was hard on right. the studios. And, and they fought and it was- actively. I mean, that that's not a mistake. I mean, the big f- five before the big four, they fought. Yeah. There was companies like Oyster that wanted to make basically streaming books a reality. And just, they fought it tooth and nail. They thought, yeah. it destroy the co- they thought it would destroy the business. And it looks like maybe they were right, at least as we know it. Yeah. And so they, unlike music, unlike film and TV, mm-hmm. like books like managed to like incorporate audio and digital and make themselves stronger. But at the same time, and this is one of the things that's just really hard to wrap one's head around about books in the third decade of the 21st century is this is like all the super dynamic things that are happening in that parallel world. Whether it be Wattpad's millions and millions of monthly teenage girl 
writers and readers who are engaging with one another on that site and creating all of this data for Wattpad that then turn into market research or Kindle Direct Publishing's millions of books that they're putting out. And what you and then if you add to that equation the new AI stuff. Yeah. Where you have some of these folks who there's a long tail on the self-publishing mm-hmm. where of the hundreds of thousands of people who are writing on there, most of them only sell a book or two, if any. But there's enough of them that there are a few hundred, hundreds of people who have managed to quit their corporate jobs and become full-time writers and sell self-published books and make a six-figure living. And these people need to like be writing all the time. And yeah. already there is a business for getting these people up to date on how to use the new AI technology to write their novels faster and it's already being used. Mm-hmm. So you already have the intensification and acceleration uh, of self-publishing through AI. When you were doing the book, what remains a splinter in your brain? What remains an open question or something that you find yourself returning to now that the book has made it all the way to its galley format? Is there anything there? I think about what's, I I just keep being fascinated with what's going on right now in books in the world of small publishers, which I see has being, has thriving. I see your NYRB, your New Directions, your Grove Atlantic, your Deep Vellum, which is this incredible little publisher in Dallas that recently acquired Dalkey Archive, a phenomenal mm-hmm. small press. And I wonder, like, why? <laughs> like, why are they, why is this such a good moment for Hub City Press in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and Belt in Cleveland? And like all of these, or might have moved to Pittsburgh, but there's, there's all of these small presses that I see as doing, we're, we're in a moment when like in the 80s, the small press scene was pretty dire. Yeah. But in the 2020s, there's like really exciting people doing works in translation, transit books, bringing in Jan Foss from Germany, Archipelago bringing Karl Ove Knausgaard. Mm. It's like some of the greatest books being published right now are getting through in these really dyna- dynamic ecology of small independent or nonprofit presses. Huh. And I, I don't, I haven't quite figured out like, why that's working, but I love that it is. The history of publishing coming into the academy is not something I was aware of. Is What is the history of that like, and, and what is the state of it now? Yeah, it's a relatively new thing mm. in the United States. There's a fantastic book. So there's a kind of movement around the sociology of literature, or book history, it's sometimes called. Mm. That's a couple decades old. There's a great book by a guy named Jim English, James English, from about 20 years ago called The Economy of Prestige. It's an incredible book about prizes and how the Booker Prize came to be and how it affects the way that the whole publishing system works. And there was a great book a few years later by a guy named Mark McGurl called The Program Era, all about how creative writing programs change contemporary American literature. That you wrestle with a little bit, like you you Mm -hmm. take on some of that and reconsider it through this lens, which is really interesting. Yeah, exactly. And these are the kinds of books that we're thinking about institutions. The creative writing program is an institution. The yeah. prizes is an institution, which which made me want to think about publishing. And when I was starting this book, I looked around and I didn't find the book that I yeah. wanted, which is the reason why I started writing it. But even in the time that I've started writing it, there's a lot of really exciting new work being done. And this angle of taking on the sociology of literature has, I think, 
been growing even in the last five years that I've been writing this book. So mm. there's an incredible writer, scholar named Laura McGrath. who's been I have her on my radar. I'm already, I've got that one pinned for, I think that's early 2024. I'm looking at that one. About the, yeah, the, about the agent. agent. Yeah. And she's written a great essay that went viral among publishing folks. So you yeah. might've seen it on, yeah. on comparative titles. Mm-hmm. It's called Comping White and the way that comparative titles reinforce a certain conservatism and a certain whiteness in the kind of books that get published. So it's a it's new, but I think people are excited about it. Yeah, I find it very exciting. Thanks so much, Dan. Best of luck with the book. And thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much to Dan for joining me. The book is called Big Fiction, out now from Columbia University Press. Go check it out. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Instagram, link in the show notes. Subscribe to the newsletter. There's a link in the show notes there. We'll be back soon with Rebecca for November It Books time. Also have some other stuff cooking in November, so we're looking forward to it. If you have a chance to rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts, that really helps us out. Also, I love to get feedback. Let me know what you thought of this episode, would you like to see in other episodes at first edition at bookriot.com. Until next time, read something great.